This is the Bible Book Club. And we're in the book of Numbers. Welcome Welcome to to the the club. club. Have you ever had that one friend or friend group who whines and complains about everything so much that you just sometimes don't even want to hang out with them anymore? Are you saying God didn't want to hang out with the Israelites? I'm (laughs) saying that's how God feels about the Israelites right about now in this drama in the book of Numbers. So last episode was chapter 13 and 14, and God was sending the spies out to Canaan. Ten of them saw an undefeatable people in approachable cities. Two of them saw God and said, hey, we can do it. We can do what God promises. What he says he's going to do, he's going to do. The people believed the 10, though, those negative pessimistic groups and and how powerful is the negative pessimistic. It spreads like cancer through the camp. And then they go into a tailspin. There's panic. There's blasphemy. They attempt to stone Joshua and Caleb, the two faithful. And the result was a sentence, 40 years of wandering in the desert. Okay, chapter 15 is going to seem odd considering the epic story we just left, uh, but we're going to get to 16, which is another epic story. Chapter 15 begins with the exact same words as chapter one, as if nothing happened in chapter 13 or 14. This is the way with God. He has pardoned them. He has sentenced them. And he has laid out the new plan, the 40-year plan, going forward. And so the Israelites begin on this new plan that happens to have the same goal. In 1431, God says, I will bring them, the children of the current generation, in to enjoy the land you have rejected. And in 152, we pick up with God gives directions for after you enter the land I am giving you. So God is saying, here's where we pick up after you get in the land. It's like he's starting over almost. Three times in this episode, the text is going to read, the Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them. After that, he's going to give a command of something to do. The purpose of this is to reiterate themes from Leviticus because they're starting over. So it's like he's going back to Leviticus and resetting the covenant. By following the moral and ritual law, they will become God's holy people once again. The spy rebellion did not change what they need to do. And that is to have a relationship with God, especially after that blasphemy. If they get back to the covenant, they will experience the covenant blessings and they will gain the promised land. So these are the specifics for what they are to do when they get to Canaan and they finally get the land. The first is an outline of laws for special offerings. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, after you enter the land I'm giving you as a home and you present to the Lord food offerings from the herd of the flock as an aroma pleasing to the Lord, whether burnt offerings or sacrifices for special vows or free will offerings or festival offerings, then the person who brings an offering shall present to the Lord a grain offering of a tenth of an ephath of the finest flour mixed with a quarter of hin of olive oil. With each lamb for the burnt offering or the sacrifice, prepare a quarter of a hin of wine as a drink offering. With a ram, prepare a grain offering of two tenths of an ephah of the finest flour mixed with a third of a hin of olive oil and a third of a hin of wine as a drink offering. 
offer it as in a pleasing aroma to the Lord. When you prepare young bulls a burnt offering or sacrifice for a special vow or a fellowship offering to the Lord, bring with the bull a grain offering of three-tenths of an ephath of the finest flour mixed with a half a hen of olive oil, and also bring a half a hen of wine as a drink offering. This will be a food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. Each bull or ram, each lamb or young goat is to be prepared in this manner. Do this for each one, for as many as you prepare." Everyone who is native-born must do these things in this way when they present a food offering as an aroma pleasing to the Lord. For the generations to come, whenever a foreigner or anyone else living among you presents a food offering as an aroma pleasing to the Lord, they must do exactly as you do. The community is to have the same rules for you and for the foreigner residing among you. This is a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. You and the foreigner shall be the same before the Lord. The same laws and regulations will apply both to you and the foreigner residing among you. Okay, so if that didn't make sense to you, just know that the text that Heather just read is outlining offerings that we discussed in detail in Leviticus. And this is just kind of like a summary. Specifically in what she just read are mentioned the burnt offering and the fellowship or peace offering. We're gonna put a chart of all the offerings from season three in the show notes if you'd like to figure them out. But I really encourage you to go back and listen to season three of Leviticus because it was fascinating. Well, and one of my Bible benders from Leviticus was, I used to be really confused about why would God even ask for all this killing of all these animals? Well, it doesn't make sense to me. Mm-hmm. And you pointed out something, Susan, to me that was just my Bible bender, and it is that this was a custom. This was something that they would have known that all the communities around there did. All of the people, not thing. just the Israelites, right. they all made these kinds of offerings, and God just defined the way that they're to offer. For things. And I think the reason he's saying here, no, the foreigner has to do it exactly the same as you do it is because they probably had their way. If if somebody comes in from a different religion, they had their way of sacrificing and God was saying, we're no. not going to do it any other way. We're doing it this way. And they and have this to is what abide. it was to mean. Right. The only new information in this section is that a cereal and wine offering must accompany the burnt and fellowship offerings. This is the first time a wine offering has been mentioned at all, but hey, by the size of those grapes in the last chapter, there will be plenty of wine in the promised land. As I mentioned, we have a chart of all of these offerings because they can get confusing in the show notes. Next, there is an outline of laws for a new offering that we haven't mentioned before and the sin offerings. Verse 17, the Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, when you enter the land to which I am taking you and you eat the food of the land, present a portion as an offering to the Lord. Present a loaf from the first of your ground meal and present it as an offering from the threshing floor. Throughout the generations to come, you are to give this offering to the Lord from first of your ground meal. This is called the loaf or cake offering or dough offering. And it's a first fruit type of offering given to the priests. Because of course, when they when they settle down, they're going to be able to bake cakes, I think. <laughs> okay, the offerings for sins. Verse 22. Now, if you as a community unintentionally fail to keep any of these commands the Lord gave Moses, any of the Lord's commands to you through him from the day the Lord gave them and continuing through the generations to come, and 
If this is done unintentionally without the community being aware of it, then the whole community is to offer a young bull for a burnt offering as an aroma pleasing to the Lord, along with its prescribed grain offering and drink offering and a male goat for a sin offering. The priest is to make atonement for the whole Israelite community, and they are to be forgiven, for it is not intentional, and they have presented to the Lord for their wrong a food offering and a sin offering. The whole Israelite community and the foreigners residing among them will be forgiven because all the people were involved in the unintentional wrong. But if just one person sins unintentionally, that person must bring a year-old female goat for a sin offering. The priest is to make atonement before the Lord for the one who erred by sinning unintentionally. And when atonement has been made, that person will be forgiven. One and the same law applies to everyone who sins unintentionally, whether a native-born Israelite or a foreigner residing among you. But anyone who sins defiantly, whether native-born or foreigner, blasphemes the Lord and must be cut off from the people of Israel because they have despised the Lord's word and broken his commands. They must surely be cut off. Their guilt remains on them. These laws are for the purification or sin offerings from Leviticus 4. Unintentional sin is outlined, and the offering for sin that was committed, either unintentional sin that was committed by the community or by just one person. Then also what was discussed is defiant sin, also called high-handed sin, with an added example very similar to Leviticus 24 about the blasphemer. This is the Sabbath breaker who is put to death. Verse 32, While the Israelites were in the wilderness, a man was found gathering wood on the Sabbath day. Those who found him gathering wood brought him to Moses and Aaron and the whole assembly, and they kept him in custody because it was not clear what should be done to him. Then the Lord said to Moses, the man must die. The whole assembly must stone him outside the camp. So the assembly took him outside the camp and stoned him to death as the Lord commanded Moses. A defiant or high-handed sin is not to be tolerated. And in Leviticus, we studied a lot about the Sabbath. Breaking the Sabbath was an act of defiance of God's law. The death penalty was used for several offenses in the Old Testament, including idolatry, false prophecy, murder, incest, and adultery. Next, we have an outline of laws for tassels on garments. Verse 37, the Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, throughout the generations to come, you are to make tassels on the corners of your garments with blue cord on each tassel. You will have these tassels to look at, so you will remember all the commands of the Lord that you may obey them and not prostitute yourselves by chasing after the lusts of your own hearts and eyes. Then you will remember to obey all my commands and will be consecrated to your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. Because the consequences for breaking a command could be fatal, it it makes sense that the people needed a visible reminder. These tassels that hopefully just scream to them every day, don't break a command or you could die. The color blue or violet, as it's sometimes translated, represents royalty and divinity. That is why the ark we learned uh, in last season was wrapped in this color. The blue cord would remind them that they were to be holy as God is holy. Also the theme of Leviticus. All right, next chapter is another dramatic story. We have more mutiny in chapter 16. Korah, son of Ishar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, 
and certain Reubenites, Dothan and Abrim, son of Eliab, and On, son of Peleth, became insolent and rose up against Moses. With them were 250 Israelite men, well-known community leaders who had been appointed members of the council. They came as a group to oppose Moses and Aaron and said to them, "'You have gone too far. The whole community is holy.' Every one of them, and the Lord is with them. Why then do you set yourselves above the Lord's assembly? So there are three distinct groups in this new rebellion. Korah was a Levite from the clan of Kohath. Aaron and Moses were from that very same clan. The Kohathites, if you remember, were the clan responsible for moving the ark. Only the Levites, remember, could move the holy things. It appears that Kohath wants to be a priest, not just a Levite. Remember, all priests are Levites, but not all Levites are priests. Being a priest was a job only Aaron and his sons and their sons were allowed. Now, Kohath uses the excuse that they are all to be holy as God is holy. Moses and Aaron are also now in their 80s. So succession planning may have been on the people's minds and Korah may have wanted to challenge the family plan, i.e., you know, the priesthood being passed down to Aaron's sons. Now, this the, another group was Dathan and Abiram and On, who are Reubenites. They are not Levites. This tribe does not serve in the tabernacle at all. So I don't know why they were making this claim. However, the Kohathites are positioned in the camp between the tabernacle and the Reubenites. In other words, they're neighbors. And you know how things spread from neighborhood to neighborhood. The the last group is the 250 men. These were not just random rogues that, you know, Korah kind of gathered up. These were actually community leaders that got behind him. Altogether, this is a group that could cause a lot of trouble. There was some power behind this group. Here's how Moses responds to Korah's rebellion. Verse 4, when Moses heard this, he fell face down. Then he said to Korah and all his followers, In the morning, the Lord will show who belongs to him and who is holy, and he will have that person come near him. The man he chooses, he will cause to come near him. You, Korah, and all your followers are to do this. Take censers, and tomorrow put burning coals and incense in them before the Lord. The man the Lord chooses will be the one who is holy. Moses falls face down in supplication to the Lord. Now, what else can you do when approached by over 250 rebellious men? I don't know, but I love the way Moses always falls face down. His first act in any kind of conflict is to seek the Lord, which is such a great example. When he rises, he commands a trial by fire test for Korah and the 250 men. God will make known his choice of a holy leader. The test is based on Leviticus 10, the censor incident in the tabernacle. In that incident, Aaron's son, Nadab and Abihu, were working in the tabernacle and offered incense in censers contrary to God's instructions. The result was immediate. They were consumed by fire. Now, the entire Israelite community would remember this. So the fact that God gives them this test should have been like an immediately, they should have been filled with fear immediately because these two priests, Aaron's sons, were burned to death. 
This test implies that if the Kohathites are indeed holy enough to serve as priests, they will survive holding the holy censers. We know from season three in Leviticus that God laid out very detailed instructions on who and how an ordained priest was to handle all the holy articles. The Kohathites were not from the family assigned to be priests, and they were not ordained. And this is not going to end well. So how you keep saying all leave all priests were Levites, but not all Levites were priests. These guys, the Kohathites, were Levites, but they were not priests. Right. They had never been ordained. And so how Aaron brilliant sense. that Moses knew based on the history oh, yeah. that when he puts them to the this test, God's going to show yeah. up. Well, Aaron's two sons were ordained priests, but they made a mistake. They mishandled the whole the fire and the censers, and they were immediately burned. So he knows if you don't do it God's way, you're cooked. And he knows they're going to be. Moses then, in anger, gives the Kohathites a scathing lecture. Continuing on in verse seven, still, you Levites have gone too far. Moses also said to Korah, "Now listen, you Levites." Isn't it enough for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the rest of the Israelite community and brought you near himself to do the work at the Lord's tabernacle and to stand before the community and minister to them? He has brought you and all your fellow Levites near himself, but now you are trying to get the priesthood too. It is against the Lord that you and all your followers have banded together. Who is Aaron that you should grumble against him? Remember when we learned about the tabernacle, there are stages of holiness. And the whole point was of the tabernacle was to have God dwell among them so they could be close to him. So the Levites, in fact, remember, are they camp right around the tabernacle. They're allowed to carry the things of the tabernacle. So they had been given a privilege. And Moses is just like furious. Like, why do you want more? You're already like singled out for greatness. It's be entitlement that they have and he's frustrated yes, with that. Yes, but they know they are from the same family as Moses and Aaron. So why do they get to be the big guys? Moses realizes this attack is not just personal to him and to Aaron. This was an attack on God. Having addressed the Kohathites, Moses turns to the Reubenites and it only gets worse. This is Moses's response to Dathan and Abiram's rebellion. Verse 12, then Moses summoned Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and they said, we will not come. Isn't it enough that you have brought us up out of the land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness? And now you also want to lord it over us? Moreover, you haven't brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey or given us the inheritance of the fields and vineyards. Do you want to treat these men like slaves? No, we will not come. Then Moses became very angry and said to the Lord, do not accept their offering. I have not taken so much as a donkey from them, nor have I wronged any of them. This attack was much more personal. This is a against Moses. And can I just say that I love Moses's humanity in this last verse. Can you not see him angrily muttering under his breath to God, don't take it. Don't take their offering. I didn't take a darn donkey from them. Like you know, God like, doesn't already know that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like God didn't already know that. Um, it just, it was personal and he reacted in a very like human way. I'm going to get them. Don't God, don't take anything <laughs> from them. We don't know how long after the spy rebellion at Kadesh that this event occurs. However, it sounds as if Dathan and Abiram are still bitter about it. They are so boldly insolent that they refuse 
even to answer Moses's summons to come speak with him. They say, I'm not going. They claim that Moses brought them out of the land of milk and honey, Egypt, with the promise of another land of milk and honey, Canaan, that he couldn't deliver. They suggest that Moses is going to kill them in the wilderness or make them slaves. So everything that Moses, God, through Moses, it was really God, they're blaming Moses, but it was really God brought them out of, they're saying Moses is trying to bring them back to. Back to the scene of the trial by fire for the 250. Poor Moses. I feel like he is doing a lot of running around trying to address this mutiny. First with Korah, then with these two guys. Now it's back to the 250. If he only had email or phone, he could blast a message to a lot of them. But this was a big camp and I'm feeling bad for the guy. He's well into his 80s. Here we go. He's back to Korah. (laughs) Verse 16. Moses said to Korah, you and all your followers are to appear before the Lord tomorrow. You and they and Aaron, each man is to take his censer and put incense on it, 250 censers in all, and present it before the Lord. You and Aaron are to present your censers also. So each of them took his censer, put burning coals and incense in it, and stood with Moses and Aaron at the entrance of the tent of meeting. When Korah had gathered all his followers in opposition to them at the entrance of the tent of meeting, the glory of the Lord appeared to the entire assembly. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, separate yourselves from this assembly so I can put an end to them at once. But Moses and Aaron fell face down and cried out, O God, the God who gives breath to all living things, will you be angry with the entire assembly when only one man sins? Okay, so this would be like bigger than the Super Bowl. 250 men are involved. So that's somebody probably from every clan or whatever. So there, everybody is gathered around to watch this. It's Aaron against 250. Who will God choose? Moses instructs Korah and his followers to take a censer with incense and present it to God. God appears to all of them so everybody can see him and instructs Moses and Aaron by saying, step away from all of them. God is implying that he is about to destroy the entire nation. He is done again. Moses and Aaron fall face down once again to spare these crazy people. To intercede on their behalf (laughs) again, just like Jesus does for us every day. Every day. Verse 23, then the Lord said to Moses, say to the assembly, move Move away from the tents of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. So God relents again from destroying the nation and redirects everyone this time to move away from the three ringleaders. Moses complies and outlines a different test for the three ringleaders only. If the earth swallows these men, then the people will know that the Lord has chosen Moses to lead them. And these men were in contempt of God by challenging Moses and Aaron. Verse 25, Moses got up and went to Dathan and Abiram, and the elders of Israel followed him. He warned the assembly, move back from the tents of these wicked men. Do not touch anything belonging to them, or you will be swept away because of all their sins. So they moved away from the tents of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Dathan and Abiram had come out and were standing with their wives, children, and little ones at the entrances to their tents. Then Moses said, this is how you will know that the Lord has sent me to do all these things and that it was not my idea. If these men die a natural death and suffer the fate of all mankind, 
Then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord brings about something totally new and the earth opens its mouth and swallows them with everything that belongs to them and they go down alive into the realm of the dead, then you will know that these men have treated the Lord with contempt. As soon as he finished saying all this, the ground under them split apart and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them and their households and all those associated with the Korah together with their possessions. They went down alive into the realm of the dead and everything they owned, the earth closed over them and they perished and were gone from the community. At their cries, all the Israelites around them fled shouting, the earth is going to swallow us too. The consequence for Korah, Dathan, and Abiram resulted in panic. Being swallowed alive was indeed a new phenomenon. The term for realm of the dead is a place called Sheol. They literally descended alive into hell. This was a horrific spiritual antithesis of the beautiful description of Enoch being caught up alive into heaven. The difficulty for me in this punishment is that the women and children were included. However, not all of Korah's family die because in Numbers 25, we will learn that some of his sons did not follow his ways of rebellion and did not stand with him. Verse 35, and fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering the incense. The consequence for the 250 was as we expected. Aaron's priesthood was undisputed. The punishment was immediate. The 250 were just not as holy as they thought they were. And the story continues with the sacred censer cleanup. Verse 36, the Lord said to Moses, tell Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, to remove the censers from the charred remains and scatter the coals some distance away for the censers are holy. The censers of the men who sinned at the cost of their lives hammer the censers into sheets and overlay the altar for they were presented before the Lord and have become holy. Let them be assigned to the Israelites. So Eleazar the priest collected the bronze censers brought by those who had been burned to death and he had them hammered out to overlay the altar as the Lord directed him through Moses. This was to remind the Israelites that no one except a descendant of Aaron should come to burn incense before the Lord or he would become like Korah and his followers. So we have a great example of what the proper protocol should be. God gives instructions to Aaron's son, Eleazar. As an authorized priest, he completes God's instructions. His thorough obedience is a sharp contrast to Korah's willful disobedience. This must have been an incredibly heartbreaking scene. This poor priest picking through 250 charred bodies while their wives and children stand on the sidelines watching and crying. From then on, the new bronze cover on the altar would be a memorial of the foolishness of those who disrespected the priesthood. I am reminded about all we learned in Leviticus about the two altars and knowing that this is the altar in the courtyard that all the people would bring their offerings to and to know what it would mean to them to be reminded that the last thing their husband or father or friend touched was hammered into the cover and made holy. Does that make sense? They took all the censers and they hammered it together and made a new cover for the altar that everyone brought their sin offerings to. So every time they approached it, they would remember, oh my gosh, 
gosh, this is why I do everything exactly as God commanded, because if I don't, it results in, in travesty. Can I go back to something you said? Yeah. You said that the women and children would be on the sidelines crying, watching them sift through the burned bodies, but I thought the women and the children also had to be. So no, in this case, the 250 men died. Co- the three ringleaders' families died. But in this case, the 250 men were this only This one the wasn't killed. also the wives and children. There are three distinct groups. Correct. God has dramatically made clear who oversees the nation, Moses, and the priesthood. Moses and Aaron can resume with the routine job of leading the people now. And it looks like God has even chosen Aaron's successor. It's going to be Eleazar. So all is back to normal until the next day when the people grumble again. Shocker. The Israelites are either super fearless after what they just saw the night before or frightfully forgetful. Verse 41. The next day, the whole Israelite community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. You have killed the Lord's people, they said. But when the assembly gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron and turned toward the tent of meeting, suddenly the cloud covered it and the glory of the Lord appeared. Then Moses and Aaron went to the front of the tent of meeting and the Lord said to Moses, get away from this assembly so I can put an end to them at once. And they fell face down. I really don't understand why they always blame Moses and Aaron when they can clearly see that cloud. But let's try to imagine how God and Moses feel at this point. It is the very next day after 250 people were killed. For God, I imagine it went like this. Perhaps God has like angel scouts, you know, that were keeping an eye on all things Israel, and hopefully he does for us too. Whenever something happens, the scouts give a quick call to God. And on this day, God picks up the phone and says, what now? He hears a report from the scout and says, again, you've got to be kidding me. Then he says, this is the last time I am coming down there. I am going to kill them. And with an angry sigh of frustration, he melts into the cloud, a black cloud, mirroring his mood and descends on Israel. For Moses, it is the third time he must hit the ground and eat dust in an earnest attempt to intercede for these crazy people. It is ironic to me that the very one being attacked, Moses, is the very one who is praying that they might be spared. Moses is the only thing standing between Israel and annihilation. He is the steadfast, loyal, forgiving intercessor. He was for the Israelites what Jesus is for us. This time, God responds with the plague. Verse 46. Then Moses said to Aaron, take your censer and put incense in it, along with burning coals from the altar, and hurry to the assembly and make atonement for them. Wrath has come out of the Lord. The plague has started. So Aaron did as Moses said and ran into the midst of the assembly. The plague had already started among the people, but Aaron offered incense and made atonement for them. He stood between the living and the dead and the plague stopped. But 14,700 people died from the plague in addition to those who had died because of Korah. Then Aaron returned to Moses at the entrance of the tent of meeting for the plague had stopped. In the last story, the censors played a role in the death of the 250. In this story, a censor plays a role in saving lives. God's designs are always for our good, but sin perverts what is holy, and the misuse of the censors is a perfect example. In the last story, Moses' intercession saved the innocent people 
and only the guilty died. The plague this time does not discriminate between the guilty and innocent, and people randomly begin to drop. And so our two somewhat aged heroes, Moses and Aaron, must rush to save as many as possible of the people who had denounced them. This time, Aaron is the only thing standing between Israel and annihilation. A less compassionate Aaron could have claimed a bad leg and given the plague a little bit more time to kill people, but he doesn't. Wearily and probably out of breath, Aaron returned to Moses. The plague had been stopped, but not before 14,700 people died. The spy rebellion consequence of death in the wilderness for those over the age of 20 is well underway. In this episode alone, almost 15,000 people died, but there are hundreds of thousands more for the next 40 years. The story of Israel's plight in the Old Testament is often written about. The American poet Henry Wadsworth Longfellow developed an interest in Judaism, and in one of his poems, he wrote about the poignant, sad, but also glorifying life of the Israelites. This is what he said, pride and humiliation hand in hand, walked with them through the world where'er they went, trampled and beaten were they as the sand, and yet unshaken as the continent. For in the background figures vague and vast of patriarchs and of prophets rose sublime, and all the great traditions of the past they saw reflected in the coming time. And thus forever, with reverted look, the mystic volume of the world they read, spelling it backward like a Hebrew book, till life became a legend of the dead." What's a club without friends? If you're enjoying the Bible Book Club, why don't you share it? And then you can say, Welcome Welcome to to the the club. club. New episodes drop every Monday and get all episodes now on Amazon Music. As always, head over to susanme.com slash Bible Book Club for show notes from today's episode. Bible Book Club is hosted by Susan Merrill and Heather Rubio. Edited by Buck Buchanan. Produced by Haley Mawatt.